0: This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. All right, well, this is what we'll do. How many of you are just joining for the very first time today? Oh, wow. <laughs> OK, this, this mortgage board sampling continues, no problem. Uh, I totally understand that. Uh, I'm going to take just a minute to briefly recap, and I don't know if the recap without the fuller explanation would even make less sense, but we'll do our best um, before we get started in today's in this morning session. In the previous meetings, we looked at the great controversy. Basically, we're approaching it like a funnel, with the large, broadest context possible, then bringing it down to the practical application. And we looked at the, what are the issues in the great controversy. And basically, uh, the reason that Satan was not destroyed immediately when God saw in his heart is because the rest of us created intelligence needed an opportunity to see what was in his heart as well. And you find Jesus talking about this in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the t- wheat and the tares. And all through, of course, the prophets back that up with Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, Revelation chapter 12. Always the process is that he was cast out instead of being blotted out. And the reason is given is that those who saw him might gaze at him and consider him and think about it. Of course, that was step one in the casting out of Satan. And the casting out of Satan takes place in four sequential steps. First of all, casting him out of the courts of heaven physically. Then at the cross, the unfallen being saw the completeness of the character of Christ And the the revelation of the love of God fully revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus, innocent and willing to give up himself for his creatures, contrasted with that of his nemesis, his enemy, Lucifer, now Satan, who would take everything, even the life of God, if it were possible. And at that point, Satan was removed, what Mrs. White calls, from the last link of sympathy between the heavenly world and Satan was broken. So uh, that's where that happened, stage two. Stage three is that victory that Christ gained on the cross. Now he needs to see in his people. And there's uh, uh, several good reasons for that. And I would encourage you to get the notes or listen to the audio verse about that or uh, GYC Web, wherever it's going to be posted about that. And uh, stage four, of course, is the final elimination of sin, which will take place at the end of the millennium. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, including the wicked that what Christ has done, the g- process of this great controversy, the plan of redemption that God had established from the foundation of the world, was not only a good thing, but the only way, the best thing, the, the, the epitome. The, the, it was right. God was right, and Satan was wrong. Bottom line. And even Satan himself will acknowledge the supremacy of the Son of God, not out of repentance, not out of genuine contrition of heart or change of mind, but because the weight of evidence mandates, dictates that this is the only option left. Then, in our previous section, before this one, uh, we looked at uh, sin being a species of selfishness. Selfishness. Sin is a four-letter word and that basically the root of all this sin problem is rooted in self-seeking where, this, where God's government runs on a circuit of beneficence, as Mrs. White would describe in Desire of Ages, pages 20 and 21, that everything in God's universe receives to give. Everything takes to give. Everything from plants and shrubs and flowers and trees and the oceans and the cycle of all the life. And uh, you, know, you, t- you see the ultimate manifestation in Jesus Christ, who lives to give. And... Today we're going to just continue with that in a session entitled um, Learning Others' Lessons. This is session number five, so we're building off of that and getting closer and closer to more practical application, and now we're going to look at uh, what, are the, what, what is an example of, of someone who is expected to live up to God's uh, high standards, and yet they failed of that, and what are the lessons we can learn from that. So as we get started, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for another day of life, another opportunity to come to GYC and to this seminar particular. I want to ask your blessing. I ask that you will take the time that we have and make it precious, to make it valuable, to make it efficient and effective for your cause. And Lord, as we study your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, help us to see what you want us to see, and more importantly, even, to make the application in our lives that you want us to have, so that we can represent your character in this world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to do a brief, very, very, very brief overview of God's expectations for ancient Israel. Now I want to show you some stuff that I think is pretty nifty, but it's in Genesis chapter 12, of course, this, this is the call of Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1, the father of the faithful. Oh, there are handouts available. Mm. Eric Lowe is a good man. I take back all of that stuff I've ever said about you. That was He has made that available. So uh, there will be some helpers, I guess, passing those out and distributing so you can follow along in the notes and make your own notes on top of them. But there they go. Uh, But we're going to start Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And again we see this circuit of beneficence. They weren't blessed just to enjoy, they were blessed to be a blessing. That was the goal. I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? So God called Abraham to be the father of the faithful, and the goal was to bless the entire world through this people. Okay. Now, we see that continued after the uh, establishment of Israel as a family. Go on to Exodus chapter 19. Hundreds of years later, when the family has developed, they've gone through the, the difficulty and trial in Egypt, and now they're on their way out. The Lord has called them to Himself to be the great nation that had been so long ago promised. Exodus chapter 19, and we'll go to verse, let's see, 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the earth, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And of course, in response, Moses does. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they enter into a covenant relationship, not just to be the family of Abraham, but now to be the nation that God has chosen to be his representatives in the world. Yet again, they're going to be blessed for the purpose of being a blessing. They were supposed to be a a national, if you will, embodiment of the principles of heaven. They were to be his representatives on the earth. Um, Basically, and, and and I want to demonstrate this from Scripture, I believe, and we just don't have time to go in the depths of it, but I believe that Israel was literally supposed to be a little piece of heaven on earth. Israel was designed... To be a piece of heaven so that when people saw Israel, they got a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Okay. For instance, let me just give you a little for instance, and again this is just going to scratch the surface, but I think it's really cool enough to talk about for just a moment. Go to the book of Numbers, chapter 2. even to the way the the camp was arranged. Because, of course, you know, the the Lord didn't just say, all right, here's my laws, good luck. (laughs) He said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. I will lead you in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and I will direct your ways. In fact, I will dwell among you. That's what Exodus 25 is all about. He said, have them make me a sanctuary. And, of course, sanctuary is a holy place that I may dwell among them. So God was going to put his self in the midst of his people. And of course, the, if you go down into it, if every piece of the sanctuary physically, from every piece of furniture, the layout of the room, all of it was a reflection of what is in heaven. Yes? So that the, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the throne of God, right? Where he governs the universe in heaven. And all of those things that the book of Hebrews tells us, all of that was foreshadowing of what, it was a type or a shadow of what is in heaven, the substances in heaven. So God was literally trying to replicate, if you will, make a Xerox image of heaven on the earth. And I, and I use this as an example in Numbers chapter 2, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. And it goes side by side how the, how the camps were to be arranged and how they were lined up. And each camp had its own standard, had its own flag in each cardinal yeah. direction, because of course you had the twelve tribes that were going to be surrounding a four-sided tabernacle. So you had three on each side, and in the midst of them you had the main standard-bearing family. Um, it's, it's more than appropriate here in, in Florida to talk about this. This is Orlando, the home of the greatest attractions on the planet. The biggest parking lots in the world are found here, and when you go to, say, you know, Disney or Epcot or whatever the places are, some world, and you park your car, you know, these, these parking lots are so massive, you know, they don't even, they don't expect you to remember where your car is, because you, you take a you t- you drive your car and they come and pick you up in another car to take you to the front of the place, right? It's huge, and. You, You don't look for your car when you come out after, you know, eating funnel cake and going on all these different rides. You're not looking for your silver SUV because there's 10,000 of them, right? And you wouldn't even find it if you, you're not looking down in the parking lot, you're looking up to see something, right? And you know that you're looking for like the dolphin with the funny hat or something, They have a picture and an emblem, and you're supposed to look for that. And that's how the Lord basically arranged the camp of Israel. They're out in the desert. They had some two million people there, and he organized the whole thing. And what's fascinating is you take a look at the organization, and if you study it, study the encampment of Israel here in Numbers chapter 2 and elsewhere, and and how he arranged each of the tribes and their locations and their standards and their emblems, and then you cross-reference that now to the back of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 4, And you compare that with a picture of God's throne in heaven, and you find some astonishing things. We'll just start with verse 2 of Revelation chapter 4, and again, this is just a very brief overview. If it's confusing, I'm sorry, but I just think it's really neat. Immediately I was in the Spirit, the Apostle John writes, now the prophet John, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne and of course that's what Israel would have the throne was in the midst of the camp it was god's headquarters and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and of course you know that the the, uh, the tribe of levi and the sons of aaron were the were the ministers in god's earthly sanctuary and their encampment was around the closest in proximity to the sanctuary and later in the book of Chronicles, it would talk about how they were organized in their roles of service, and there were 24 of those around the God's throne. It's really cool. Okay. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. Sounds a lot like the earthly sanctuary, yes? Which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea like of, gra- of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And what's fascinating about these living creatures is they each had a different face. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now that in and of itself does not seem too particularly interesting uh, in context of Israel until you realize that the standards... The flags that, that represented the four main cardinal directions around the earthly sanctuary were the images of a man and a lion and an ox. I mean these are in an eagle. These are the same thing. Basically, what God wanted to do with Israel on earth was literally show a picture of what heaven was like. Okay? It's fascinating. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy now, chapter four. In verse 5, Moses instructs on behalf of the Lord once again the children of Israel and the high expectation God had for them as His representatives in this world. He says, Surely, Moses says, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just uh, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Why? Therefore be careful to observe them for... This is your wisdom in the sight of the people who will hear of these statues and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Mrs. White makes the comment about that passage that she says, even these words, paraphrasing now, fail to encompass the greatness, the the, the expectation that God had for His people, not only to the surrounding nations, was Israel supposed to represent the law of God and the, be the people of God, but also to the rest of the universe. Before men and angels, if you will, Israel was supposed to be a reflection of the kingdom of God. So that if someone came into the camp, you think about it, you meet, you've never heard of an Israelite before, but the first thing you do, you walk over the hill and down in the plain, you see the children of Israel encamped, and the first thing that strikes your attention is they're all incredibly organized. Two million some people, all, you know, just great structure, you know. I drove here this morning through Orlando. They could use some better structures, okay. <laughs> but there, everyone had their place. It all worked together harmoniously, right. And you notice some interesting things. If every, think about it, if every person in the camp were obeying the law of God, what would the, what would the children of Israel, what would the encampment of Israel be like? No locks on the doors. No divorce. Pretty low crime rate. (laughs) None. You go to get a job, they're like, you know, you have to take every seventh day off. Great. And in fact, um, every six years, we're going to give you the following year completely off. Nice. (laughs) I don't know much about your God yet, but I like where you're headed, you know? (laughs) Right? And everything in Israel would lead to the center point, which is the Lamb and the sacrificial service that leads to the very throne of God. The whole thing was supposed to be a ministry of reconciliation to bless the entire world. They were to be his ambassadors, his representatives, in this place of what heaven is like, a little piece of heaven on earth. Does that make sense? Are we following along with that? Okay, that was the high expectation God had of Israel. They were supposed to literally be an embodiment in their, in their corporate way and in their individual characters of what heaven is like. Now, let's go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Paul is writing here as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1 about the New Testament church. And he uses God's Old Testament church of Israel as an example But sadly, an example of what not to do. What happened? Chapter 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was whom? Christ, right? They were Christ's followers on the earth before Christ came the first time. And he's like, They're the, it's the same Christ that you're following now. They were supposed to follow them. They were drinking the same spiritual drink, the same spiritual food. They were you then. So it behooves us to learn what they did right or in this instance, what they did wrong. It seems to be the tenor of Paul's address. It says, but, verse 5, With most of them, God was not well pleased. And how do we know that? (laughs) For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They did not cross into the promised land. (coughs) Which is what God expects of his people today, by the way. Spiritual Israel is on a journey to heavenly Canaan, yes? And again, as we talked about before, I don't want to just merely live to the second coming. I want to live through the second coming. I don't want to make it to the border of the promised land and be like these and have my body strewn in this wilderness. He says, all right, for those of you living at the other end of time, after Christ has come the first time, looking forward to his second coming, in preparation for that, we should learn the lessons of Israel. Now, verse 6, these things became our what? Example. So we're going to learn others' lessons now. We're going to learn from them. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So apparently one of their issues, the central issue, was sin. Do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Of course, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 32 and the golden calf incident. What you think about that, uh, if, you, if you want to study that out, it's fascinating. Uh, you look in scripture and it says, make us a golden calf, but as for this Moses. We don't know. The golden calf was, in a very real sense, their new Moses. They needed, a, if they needed to see something, got very restless. As soon as it was out of sight, oh, what do we do? Blah, blah, blah. Make us a golden calf, right? They were impetuous. They were, they were not patient. They lacked a certain, hang on and wait, it's going to be all right. I don't know what you call that, but I just describe it with, hang on and wait, it'll be alright. I guess endurance, right? But they just jumped to the evil as soon as it was opportunity. Nor, verse 8, let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain. <laughs> You know, when you study ancient Israel, all we talk, we, we, we notice how often they complain, they complain, I mean, boy, they were complainers back then. <laughs> Friends, we complain a day too. You know, we're Israel on this side, and Paul's saying, learn their lessons and don't be like them. Okay? Watch this. Nor complain, as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, in verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, specifically upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Israel, by their failure to be what God asked them to be, now is a standing example to us of what not to do. Does that make sense? Okay, so we should learn the lessons of their past. What actually went wrong? Now, Go back to Genesis chapter 4. Apparently they had struggled with sin. As Paul repeatedly, idolatry, sexual immorality, lusting after things. They just, what they wanted they got and they were not following the commands of the Lord. And I imagine you could take away, well, I guess you can't follow the commands of the Lord. But I don't believe that's the takeaway lesson we're supposed to learn from Israel. Paul certainly doesn't think so. He's like, look at their lesson and don't do what they did. right? So let's go back. What is God's expectation for us when it comes to sin? Genesis chapter 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel. And of course, you know in the first five verses it describes the, the sacrifice experience where Abel's... Offering of the fat of the lamb was accepted by the Lord and looked with favor. Cain's was not. And it says in verse 5 and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? And notice this thing. Why are you mad? This doesn't make sense. And he explains why. Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? It's not like there's something unattainable here. Just do what I asked. It's that simple. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Notice what it says. And if you do not do well. Like if you choose in this instance to disobey, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Notice that the Lord makes it very clear that sin is there as an enemy ready to pounce. Sin's lying at the door. We see this in the New Testament. The devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Temptation in this life is not an if. It's a when. It's a guarantee. God himself says it. No problem with that. But notice what the Lord's response to that is. But you should rule over it. That doesn't mean you're going to destroy it. It doesn't mean the temptation is going to be eliminated. But when the temptation comes, you should have mastery over it. And he tells this to Cain right there at the beginning. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you don't, you're headed down a path here and sin's going to own you more and more and more. It's a struggle. It's a combat. You must rule over it. It's the Lord's expectation. Okay. Now, let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. We had seen this in a previous passage, but... Uh, In a previous session, I mean. Zechariah, right there towards the end of the Old Testament, chapter 3. Again in verse 1, we find the prophet is shown a vision of the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing his right side to oppose him. And as we saw previously, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? So we already have a track record that needs forgiveness. And that's very clear, and it's right here in the passage too. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. By the way, notice his garments were fil- filthy, and whatever accusation, say, if Satan was standing there saying, hey, hey, this is your high priest, but he's a sinner. God doesn't say, no, he's not. He's like, yeah, 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 but just be quiet. <laughs> I'm going to take care of that. The Lord rebuke you. I'm going to pluck this one from the fire. Notice what happens. How does he do it? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments. And of course, as our previous session talked about, when he took those filthy garments, he didn't just leave them crumpled on the floor and, oh, sin problem solved, just take it away. No. The Lord laid on him, that is Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. There's a great exchange. We get his robe of righteousness and he gets our robe of unrighteousness. And the penalty that we deserve he paid on the cross. Okay? Very clear about that. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And oftentimes that's where we stop in Zechariah chapter 3. But go down to verse 6. Notice the admonition. Now that you have this clean start, now that you've got forgiveness, now that you have a new robe, what do you do about it? Verse 6, the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then, shall, then you shall also judge thy house, and likewise have charge over my courts. I will give you a pl- places to walk among those, these who stand here. Notice he's like, alright, I've taken care of your past, taken away the filthy garments, given you a whole new robe, now... Walk in my ways. Basically, you could paraphrase this by saying, he said, go and sin no more. Right? That's how Jesus boiled it down. Different times in his ministry. Probably the most uh, well-known is John chapter 8. If you go there, John chapter 8, the same concept from the beginning, right there from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the New Testament, God's expectation for us, is not that we'll escape the possibility of sin or temptation itself, but that we would rule over it. John chapter 8, again, the woman caught in adultery, go to verse 10, which by the way, let's back this up a little bit, because I want you to see the parallels here between Joshua the high priest and this woman caught in adultery. Um, because in the eyes of heaven, which of the two was more sinful? Both. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah says that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So you have the high priest standing and he's dressed in filthy rags. I mean, this one apparently isn't really wearing much of any rags at all, but I mean, it's an indictment of the filthiness, right? Let's just go back to verse 2. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the adultery in the very act. Now, again, keep in your mind the parallel of Zechariah chapter 3. You have a human being whose Satan is standing before the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and you have accusers saying, hey, 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 this one sinned. What are you going to do about it? Your law says the wages of sin is death. Let's do this thing. Right? Same thing you're seeing played out here. Watch now. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, we should, that she should be, such should be stoned, but what do you say? Again, trying to create a false dichotomy. Moses said this, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Same language there. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And of course, from the added inside of the desire of ages, what was he writing down in the sand? Their sins, sins, right? Does he say, no, she didn't sin? No, but he basically declares all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, if we really want to do the killing route, let's all line up. Verse 7, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to him, who is, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even to the last. Apparently, started with the list of the oldest first, and they recognize in the dirt their sins. You know, which it seems like a pretty strong evidence of his divinity. Yeah, he can not only know your sins and declare them and write them down in public, so much so that you have to be like, I don't want to be associated with that pile of writing. <laughs> so they left, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, "Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No one, Lord." And Jesus said, "Neither do I condemn you." And I think a lot of a Christianity likes the idea of "Neither do I condemn you." Go. Period, (laughs) right? But he says the same thing to her that he said to Joshua the high priest. Okay, I've given you this great exchange. Now let's recalibrate you to what I wanted you to be in the very beginning. Go and sin no more. By the way, if there was one thesis statement for Christ's object with the great controversy, it would be sin no more. Right? That's the that's the goal of the whole thing. Go and sin no more. And as it's talked about in Genesis, and it goes through the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, I'm I'm fully convinced that God is not asking for something that can't be done. Now, He is asking for something that can't be done all on your own, or in your own strength, right? But Christ doesn't ask us to fight in that armor. In fact, speaking of fighting, this is a great parallel back to ancient Israel whenever they were supposed to go into conflict with some enemy, Christ said, I will go before you and I will drive them out. You just walk along with me, right? You follow my lead and I'll drive them out. And every time they did that, they would fight in very unconventional ways, if you noticed, right? Like they would go into war with trumpets. (laughs) My humanity, I'd prefer a sword. Um, But they would take trumpet and he would say, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around and go home, and <laughs> march around again and go home, and then I want you until the seventh day, to march around seven times and blow those trumpets, and just watch the Lord win. Right? You have an active role to play, right? But the victory is in Jesus, in His power. He says, "Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit," saith the Lord God. But there is victory in Jesus. This was the lesson He was trying to teach them. And they were supposed to take step by step, one by one. If you notice, the Lord didn't clear out the whole land of Canaan and just make it vacant and be like, go, take it, it's yours. You know, they get to the border of the, of the, uh, of the promised land and they sent some spies in. And you know what happened? They found out that it was not vacated yet. Like, there's people there. And they're big. <laughs> I mean, we look like grasshoppers. And they said, we can't do it. Now, were the spies right? Were there people in the land? Yes. Yes. Were they great, big, scary people? Yes. Could they defeat those people? Now slow down now. Yes, if they fought the way the Lord taught them to fight. If they followed the Lord's leading, if they did let the Lord do the heavy lifting, you see what I'm saying? But on their own, from their own human perspective, what God was asking them to do was an impossibility. It's too big and do. And of course, the only two, Caleb and Joshua, was like, no, 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 no. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, basically paraphrasing. You know, they stole from the New Testament to say it. But they, they said, no, 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 but they're big, but you should see our God. He's even bigger. We can do it. And all the people said, no. <laughs> and thus they got to the border of the promised land, as Paul talked about. But they wandered, and their bodies were left strewn in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua, however, did not die in the wilderness. They got to go in. Was it because they were stronger and fitter? (laughs) No. By the time they got back around, they were older. You know, they weren't warrior age. But they had faith. And by the way, when they finally did cross the, you know, it was flood stage of the Jordan River, and if you notice, they had to carry the ark across, and the water didn't move until they put their foot in the water. It's not like stand and just watch it part, and it's like, no, no, you just walk. I know it looks crazy, but just walk in that water. Just do it, right? That's how the Lord fights, and apparently what he asks us to do from our perspective seems an impossibility, but from Christ's perspective, he's bigger. He can win. There's victory in Jesus. Now, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. I just want to give you some biblical passages in case this is, in case it seems like, I don't know, I want you to know that this is a biblical expectation all the way through that God's people, when fighting as He asks them to fight, as given the strength that Christ offers, because Christ's cross was not just pardon for us, but also power for us. It's the power of God unto salvation. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm just going to give you a, a short list here of some victory passages. I want you to know that victory is a possibility from Scripture's perspective. Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, my brethren... Be strong how? In the Lord. He does not say, hey, just be strong. Good luck. No, no, no. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, again, it sounds like a difficult one. Can you stand against the wiles of the devil? In yourself? No. In Christ's strength? Yes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. When the devil comes to you, you just keep standing in the strength of Christ. How about 1 Corinthians? Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And by the way, these texts are just a sample of the many, many, many texts that talk about the strength of the Lord for His people. 1 okay? Corinthians chapter 10. After he talks about, and the context is important here. Okay? We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now go to verse 12. What's the takeaway? What's the point of saying that this is the, the recounting this history of Israel from Paul's perspective? Look at verse 12. Therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you're good on your own, that's what Israel thought, and they left in the wilderness. In their strength, they were done for. However, verse 12, I mean verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is what? Faithful. And who will not allow. Now, of course, if Satan had his way He would overwhelm you to such an extent. He would squish out that will of yours. He would make you a slave with no hope of escape. But God won't allow it. In fact, that goes all the way back to Genesis, you recall. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and thy seed. It's like, I'm not going to let you. There's only a certain amount. You can push them, influence them, sway them, but you can't force them. Which is fascinating. In this regard, Christ and Satan play by the exact same rules. Both draw and can influence, but you choose whom you will serve. Okay? Now, if we were to say, "I'm God, I'm good, I got this devil. <laughs> it's like, great, bring it on. But if you link up with the Lord, he says, let's go. No problem. And this is what the text says. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, notice, it is a temp- the, the full expectation that you're going to be tempted. Do not have this idea that now I've come into the Christian walk and now that I have Christ dwelling in me, now that I've given myself to him, it's, he just opens up the floodgates, there are no encumbrances, no obstacles, and I just go on. No, 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 no. Friends, climbing stairs is how you build legs. Think about it. What if the Lord had removed all the obstacles for Israel? He wanted them to learn the lesson of reliance on him. Through toil, through difficulty. Not impossibility, but struggle. But apparently Israel's problem was, as soon as they found a problem, they're like, oh no, let's go back to Egypt. They didn't have push. They didn't stand. They would just fall. They would run into a wall. That's it. And Paul says, don't be like that. And again, it's in the immediate context of Israel's history that he's saying this. But you stand but will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It is a possibility to stand up under temptation. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Right there after the book of Hebrews, James chapter 4 and verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I want to be sure that we read this correctly. He does not just simply say, resist the devil and flee from you. The first step is to submit to God. Then, in his strength, resist the devil, and he will flee. But notice it's not a he might, we hope he will, just maybe. No, he will flee. Romans chapter 8. I like this passage because Paul gets kind of into a, he kind of preaches a little bit here when he writes in Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. Well, you know what? We just can't. (laughs) Let's start with verse 18. This is the difficulty with Paul and any portion of Scripture, really, but especially, like, you read that, I was like, oh, you've got to go one more before that. Then you've got to go before that, so it's like, all right, let's go back to Genesis 1, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll start with Romans 8, 18. We'll just start there. But notice what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Where is the glory revealed? in us. What is the glory of God? It's His character. Right? And notice it's not in, in an eschatological in time kind of scenario where the glory of God that will be revealed on the eastern horizon. When he's not talking about that external glory when He comes again. He's talking about the character glory that will be revealed in you. And He said the sufferings we go through is nothing compared to the weight of glory that would be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing, not of the Son of God, singular on the eastern horizon, but the sons of God here. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our, and here it is, our body. When Christ comes again, what's the thing that we get that's new? A body. What do we not get when Christ returns? A character. So apparently the character is going to be revealed in us, and when he comes, we just get a body that matches that glorious character. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? I guess that makes sense. you like, I don't hope that I can have this Bible in my hand. Hey, I've got it. No problem. He says, but well, we hope for this glorious body. We hope for these things, and we know that we're not there, but we're growing into it. We're coming. Just keep pressing. Keep going. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Again, that push, that just keep going. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You know, when you when you're up against a struggle, sometimes and not sometimes, every time you need to pray, and you're saying, I don't know exactly what to pray. What's the right prayer? Just talk to the Lord. Ellen White would say, talk to him like you're talking to a friend. And when you're having a bad day, how do you talk to your friend? Hey, how's your day going? Ah, it's just, uh. He's like, well, say that. <laughs> talk to the Lord. How's your day going? Lord, you know, it's just, a, the thing is that, ah. Uh. the Holy Spirit l- listen, here's what he means. Um, <laughs> boy, there's this thing going on. He's like, but just keep that channel of communication open. Doesn't have to be beautiful, doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be poetic, doesn't have to be King James. Okay. Just talk to Jesus. Keep that link open. And the Holy Spirit's there to intercede. Just keep persevering. Go. Okay. Now, verse 27, He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the ultimate objective, to be conformed to the image of the Son, to be remade into the image of God that we were originally created to be. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then, to cap it all off, Paul just unleashes, I think, on a roll here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own... And think about it. He's like, we're talking about God here. And he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? Like, if he's going to go as far to give us Jesus, and not just loan us Jesus, by the way, gave us Jesus for the rest of eternity, he's going to be our brother. We sinned and we get new bodies. Christ still is going to have scars. And if God did that for us in Jesus Christ, what in the world makes you think He's going to leave you alone in the moment you need help? Is he, if He's already done this and He says, Go and sin no more, where is your, why do you have any lack of faith that He's not going to give you the strength to keep going? Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare up His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ who died. It is furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Friends, it's, it's so great that we have a friend in high places when we have Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? By the way, even if somebody said, you know, you have to break the law of God or I'll kill you. Obey. Christ said it himself. Don't fear him who can kill just the body only. Right? That's first death. First death is nothing. I can give you a new body but you just keep talking to me, keep walking with me, right? And Paul says with this mindset, you're bulletproof, you're indestructible. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. And notice it's always through Christ, always in Christ that we conquer For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, there is victory in Jesus. Mm. Just a a few statements here from the Spirit of Prophecy on this. Review and Herald, November 5, 1901. Christ's death and resurrection have opened before every soul an unlimited source of power from which to draw. This power will enable you to overcome the most objectionable traits in your character. God's supply of grace is awaiting the demand of every sin-sick soul. It will heal every spiritual disease. By it, hearts may be cleansed from all defilement. It is the gospel remedy for the curse of sin. The gospel is not just pardon, friends, it's power for victory. How about this one from You Shall Receive Power, appropriately titled book, page 350. You may feel that you cannot meet the approval of heaven. That's a quite a legitimate possibility. Doesn't mean it's real, doesn't mean it's true. But you might face this. You may feel that you cannot meet the appeal of heaven. You may say, I was born with a natural tendency toward this evil and I cannot overcome. That would be the temptation to say. But every provision has been made by our heavenly Father whereby you may be able to overcome every unholy tendency. You are to overcome even as Christ overcame in your behalf. He says, to him that overcometh I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. How about Councils on Health, page 440. And again, this is just a fraction of a molecule of the amount of just the massive volumes that Mrs. White writes about overcoming and victory, and it's every time you're in Christ, you have victory. Every time. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. Instead of being held in bondage to the lower nature, they are to rule over appetite and passion. He's like, oh man, that sounds so legalistic. So, Isn't that exactly what Christ said to Cain? Sin lies at the door, but you must rule over it. God has not left us to battle with evil in our own finite strength. Here's the key. Whatever may be our inherited or cultivated tendencies to wrong, we can overcome through the power that He is ready to impart mercy. Thus, we come back to the premise we've been establishing before 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Sorry, wrong. wrong book there. 2 Corinthians 3, and verse 18. As we look to Jesus, notice what Paul writes. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, what's that word? Transformed. Into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now it's fascinating, if you were to type into your Ellen White app or CD-ROM or whatever, that phrase "glory to glory," you will find that sometimes she, and oftentimes she will even insert into the text of Scripture a little bracket next to "glory to glory" that says "from character to character." Right? That's what glory is talking about here. It's not like you're going to get a little bit shinier and a little bit shinier until all of a sudden you're just bright and shiny. It's not that external glory; it's the inward weight of character, like Christ. And you do and notice it's process language. It's not a transaction. It's not immediate, it's not instantaneous, but it's always going. It never stalls out, it just keeps going from glory to glory to glory. And and that's what we talked about the other day. We talked about how character determines your destiny, but your decisions determine your character, right? Decisions, that free exercise of the will that neither God nor Satan can intervene and make your decisions for you, those choices turn into a lifestyle, uh, turn into a habit, right? You do it over and over, and you, it's just kind of what you do. Then it becomes a lifestyle. That's what you've always done at this point. Which becomes a character. It's just what you do now. It becomes who you are. And that determines your destiny. So it's step by step. This victory over sin process is not going to be instantaneous, necessarily. If God wants to give you a miraculous victory and jump you from here to there, great, take it, you know. But the entire formation of a Christian and Christ-like character is not an instantaneous thing. Paul talks about it here. We're being transformed, being transformed into His image from glory to glory. And how is it done? Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, Let's take a look at John. First John. I try desperately not to have favorite passages in the Scripture. But it's hard not to be drawn to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1. Behold, what manner of love. Of course, the, the song is going in your mind probably right now. Yeah. The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. He just looks at it. He's like, look at it! Behold! Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's great! Exclamation point! Hooray! Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Then he says, beloved, now, and notice the same process language, now we are children of God. Think of Zechariah. Think of the woman at the well. I mean, not the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Well, woman at the well too, sure. (laughs) But the woman caught in adultery from our earlier illustration, right? Now you are children of God. Present tense. Notice this now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Okay? But, we know that when He is revealed, a reference to the second coming, we shall what? Be like Him. Notice it does not say that when He is revealed at the second coming, then we shall be made like Him doesn't say that. It says, now we're the children of God, and we don't know exactly what it looks like on the other end, but when Christ is revealed, we know that we will be like Him. By the way, how do we know that we'll be like Him when He comes? According to the text. For what reason? We shall see Him as He is. And what's the uptick of this? What's the take-home lesson? And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. The goal is to become more and more like Christ so that when Christ comes, we can go from this world to the next seamlessly. It's the great aim of the the object, the great aim of the great controversy. Mark chapter 4. Again, this process, this transformation of character. Mark chapter 4. It's chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 26. This tiny, tiny little parable. And he said to them, The kingdom of God is as if a man should set a seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day. So, I mean, that's an, obviously he sleeps at night and gets up and goes about his business in the daytime. So night after night, he goes down to bed, gets up again night by night. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. By the way, I still—I have no idea. I cannot crack this code. I don't get how you can take a seed and it can live in a bag and just sit there, right, doing nothing. You put it in the ground, a little water, and all of a sudden, how does it know? How does it do it? I don't know. But he says, "Look, just by faith, put it in the ground, and just keep going. Night by night, day by day." and it's going to start to grow. And he says here, For the earth yields crops by itself. First, and notice how it yields the crop. First the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens immediately, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. When the grain ripens. Now, Commenting on this from Christ Objects Lessons, Mrs. White makes this statement. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of spiritual life. Five minutes. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's good. All right. Represents the beginning of spiritual life and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace. There can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. That's a pretty stark reality, right? But you have, you've seen that in plants. You talk about people have a green thumb or not. If it works, it grows. If it doesn't, but you never have plants that just kind of plateau. They're always growing or they're dead. That's it. Same thing in the spiritual life. There's no like hanging out in neutral. As its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Right? I've overcome the things he's presented now, but I know there's a vast field to go, and so I just keep going. You know, I honestly should have entitled this message, Just Keep Going. That's the punchline to the thing. In Christ's strength, just keep going. There will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. She goes on to say in a a different... uh, Let's see, the reference to this is Patriarchs and Prophets, by the way, 2.23. Character is not inherited. It cannot be bought. Moral excellence and fine mental qualities are not the result of accident, The most precious gifts are of no value unless they are improved. The formation of a noble character is the work of a lifetime and must be the result of diligent and persevering effort. Again, that's not legalism. It's just when he says, stand up and walk, you obey. What would have happened, by the way, in the physical healings if Christ says, take up your mat and walk? And the guy said, as soon as I see my body do it, I'll believe it. No. But it's in this taking a step that the healing occurs, right? You, now, was it his strength? No, he had some atrophied muscles. He can't do it. But he makes a decision, and in Christ's strength, the healing comes. You just take a step. And then the next leg heals the same way. By the way, you're more encouraged to do the next leg after you take the first leg, right? <laughs> after that first one works, you're like, man, I'm going to try this out on this next thing, right? Boy, if I can have victory over this, I can have victory. And you start from glory to glory, growing into the image of Christ. So, one of Israel's great shortcomings, I believe, was endurance. You know, every time they get hungry, oh, we've got to go back, and they just fall out flat every time. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, if you will, if you notice, it's every time. By faith, someone did. By faith, they did. And it was either overcoming a great obstacle, like being too old to have babies, or building a boat to house the world, and all these different things, or having to wait a long amount of time, but they just kept going. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that real quick. In the light of the Hebrews 11 hall of faith, what does Paul take away as the punchline for this one? Hebrews chapter 11, I mean chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Oh, by the way, I'm supposed to say go to outreach after this. So go to outreach after this. Okay, got that done. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says keep your eyes on Jesus and just keep going. That's the, there's the key to victory right there. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. If, if you start to like, oh man, this is hard, this is tiring, keep your eyes on Jesus. Think about what Jesus went through. He said that same strength he's going to give to you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And now, what's the indictment? Look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. So the, most, the problem that people have with sin... Is it as soon as they see it coming, they just fall down and play dead? Ah, boom. I mean, you're talking about onward Christian soldiers, but you're not actually fighting. He's like, stand up, not in your own strength, put on the whole armor of God and stand. And then take a step. And it might be a little step or it might be great leaps. Go at the pace God is leading you, but keep going. Don't ever quit. Push. Push. And I'm not preaching legalism here. Please be clear on that. I'm talking about in Christ's strength alone. But there is victory in Jesus. I have to wrap this up. Let's just go down to the very bottom. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Just, I just want to finish with these texts. They're so encouraging. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Because you could be thinking, boy, if I ever fall, if I ever fall down, oh I'm done for it. No, 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 don't think like that. Get back up. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, you're done. Is that what it says? No. No. Praise the Lord that it's not written that. By the way, temptation is a win, yes? It's inevitable, it's a guarantee, it's going to happen. Buck up, it's coming. Sin, according to Scripture, is an if. It's not a guarantee that you're going to sin, but if you do. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Think about it. The same guy who wants to give you victory when you fall down will pick you back up and give you new victories. The issue in the Christian life is don't stay down. If you fall, not when you fall, but if you fall, get back up. Keep pushing. Keep persevering. Jesus Christ will give you the strength. Uh, There's so many of these passages I want to go through, but... Uh, you know what let's just end there I see people going around and the people are approving of my ending soon so go through the notes look through it we're going to have one more session tomorrow afternoon but I want to ask has today's session made sense was it clear yes. praise the Lord is there victory in Jesus yes. with that let's bow our heads for word of prayer Heavenly Father thank you so much for giving us promise not only of pardon but also of power in our own strength, we can do nothing, but in your strength, there's nothing we can't do. So, Lord, help us to have that faith, and if we fall down, if we fall down, Lord, help us to get back up and keep walking and growing into the very image of Jesus. Before we pray it in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.